you know, last week I asked the question, has God ever said to you, trust the process? And, you know, that that can be a, a frightening, uh, you know, thing to hear from God at times because you don't know exactly what's about to happen. And the idea of what, you know, whatever process God leads us into, we oftentimes are hesitant with it because, let's just say, we get addicted to comfort. We, we like for things to, to be predictable. We like for things to, you know, stay the same to a degree so that our lives make sense. And for the most part, they do. But sometimes God just really, he changes things on you, doesn't he? There are moments in life where you know God was involved and things happen and you're just not the same on the other side because you either you learn some truth, you, you get saved and the Holy Spirit comes in, you're a new creation or even, you know, after you're saved, God does a work in your life and again, you, you learn some kind of truth. And the thing about truth is you can't unlearn it. Once it enters into your heart and your mind, it's, we can ignore it, we can rebel against it, we can pretend it's not there, but we can't unlearn it. Because truth is eternal. Truth is what flows from God. And sometimes the truth stings a little bit, doesn't it? And that's why sometimes we're like, eh, I don't know, you know, God, do I really want to enter into this? Because sometimes, you know, the word brutal is put in front of truth. Why is that? Because sometimes truth hurts. And yet, nothing bad ever comes from the truth. Now, I'm not saying that people handle the truth the right way, and sometimes people say, well, I'm just being truthful. No, you're really just being mean. Uh, but, but, you know, genuine truth, as God gives it in his loving, graceful way, nothing bad ever comes from it in the end. And that's what we're going to see this week in Second Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. Paul tells us that there's this godly grief that happens, and what comes from it is godly growth. And again, it's not one of those moments where like, yay, grief. That's what I wanted to hear about today when I came to church. And yet, to know that even in grief, even when the truth hurts, God is working towards something amazing. You see, God does not cause pain for no reason. He does not indiscriminately just hurt people and, and cause grief and cause pain. If pain has to be involved, there is a redemptive purpose. There is a good reason, and there is something positive. There is something eternally good that is on the other side of it that God is pushing us towards. Now, that is hope, isn't it? To know that everything that God does is going to ultimately lead to something good. Because God can do no other. He cannot lead us to, into something bad. The scripture tells us God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone else to evil. He cannot be tempted. So everything God does in our lives is for the purpose of moving us forward. And so look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. And the Apostle Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, 
but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just, but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Now, this is a, a wonderful section of Scripture. And, and I, I hope, you know, we call it godly grief, godly sorrow. But I'm going to tell you, this is, it, it, there, there is a wonderful sense of hope and encouragement in this passage that I hope by the end of today you, you really grab onto because what we're going to see is that everything God does leads to repentance and sanctification. Okay, everything God does, God's process in your life, everything he does leads to repentance and sanctification, which means every work of God in your life is positive. It's for a positive reason. It's for a positive direction. Now, I'm not, don't weigh it, you know, as far as the, the worldly ideas of there's no trouble involved. There's no grief involved. We're always happy and it's kittens and rainbows. That's not what I'm talking about. But the end goal of everything God is doing in your life is for the process of getting you to turn from that which takes life and turn towards life, to have abundant life. And this is incredibly hopeful because, you know, sometimes we may wonder, you know, things can start falling apart or it can seem to be going bad and we're just like, God, you know, why are you doing this to me? And it can feel like God's punishing us, right? Anybody ever felt like that? I mean, it, it, I mean, honest, like, God, you're picking on me. I feel like you're picking on me. I feel like you're not answering my prayers. I feel like this. Now, how many of you went through that in the past? But as you look back, you realize God was there the whole time and his process led you to a better place after it was over. God's track record on this is 100%. This is the way it always is. Because one, God is not mad at you. He's not punishing you. And I can say that in full confidence of Scripture because all of God's wrath and all of his punishment for sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross. He didn't reserve a little bit for you. All of that happened at the cross, which means since all of his wrath was poured out on the cross on Jesus, and Jesus said, it is finished. That's what he's talking about on the cross. God's, the, the payment for sin is complete. God's wrath is complete. All of that has happened so that now for those who are in Christ, all of God's actions regarding you are now for the process of building you up, not to punish you. God would be going back on his word if he were punishing you. Now, People say, well, it sure felt like a punishment. Look, there are natural consequences to sin that God does not have to actively step in and like, I'm punishing you for this. They just happen. 
okay? Think of it like this. There are natural consequences to if you're hammering a nail in and you miss the nail and you hit your thumb, there's a natural consequence there, right? How many have experienced that? There's a natural consequence on that side. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. That will never change. Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment of sin away and the power of sin, not the reality of sin. And so even a Christian can do incredible damage to themselves simply by engaging in unrepentant sin. That's not God punishing you. That's just the natural state of the world. And so when we realize all of God's actions regarding us are for the process of redemption and sanctification, salvation, and becoming more like Jesus, we start to see he'll use those natural consequences to get our attention. But he's not punishing you. He's growing you. He's opening your eyes to the truth. This, the wages of sin really is death. And you don't want that in your life. And that he really is life. And you really do want Jesus in your life. And what happens as we experience the natural consequences of sin. And then we see the holiness of God in our sin in light of the holiness of God. There is what is called a godly grief that sets in. And it is something that we see over and over and over throughout scripture. In the Old Testament, every time a person got a glimpse of the holiness of God and the power of God and the presence of God, what was their immediate reaction every single time? Woe is me, I'm done, I'm going to die. It wasn't this, oh, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen, I can't wait to have more. There was always a realization of their own sin first in which they're like, well, that's it. That's it. I'm in the presence of holiness and I'm sinful. Now I'm going to die. Now, did they die? No. Why? Because the mercy of God. Again, his process was not about destroying them, but the godly grief for their sin was necessary to accomplish what God wanted to accomplish. And we see this throughout. In the New Testament, you have Jesus talking about two people go up to the temple to, to pray. And, and you have the, the Pharisee who's self-righteous. And he goes up and he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like sinners. Thank you, God, that I'm so awesome. And then he says there's a tax collector that goes up and he won't even look to heaven. And, and, he, and he cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he says, one of them went away justified that day. And it was the one who had godly grief for his sin. Now, godly grief is not meant to destroy you. Okay, godly grief is that part where it cuts to the heart and we realize that we have, in fact, violated the holiness of God. And that the holiness of God is life. And that we have forfeited our life by ourselves, by our choices, okay? It is grief that makes us aware of our need for a Savior. It is grief that makes us desperate to be forgiven. We need that grief in our lives. That is what he means by when he says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Okay, godly grief 
produces a repentance that leads to salvation. You see, there's a resolution to it. It's not this grief that is meant to destroy a person and leave them in this place of of doubt and, and misery. It is a grief that has a resolution that points you to something greater, that pulls you out of that pit of sin and pushes you towards the light that is Jesus Christ. And it is the process that is going to happen for every single human being in creation. There is no short-circuiting this process. That's why Paul is happy where he said, you know, I regretted writing this letter because it grieved you, but I don't regret it because it grieved you into repenting. And he sees the growth that it's presenting, that, that, it's, it, that it's causing in their lives. He sees that they're drawing closer to God. And he's like, yes, that's what, we've, well, that's what we want. That's what we all want. This is what God wants in your life. And so he explains to them that godly grief is a good thing. Now, how do we know when it's godly grief and when it's worldly grief? Again, godly grief will resolve. Godly grief has a a, a benchmark that we understand we've fallen short from that, that there is a solution to. And God sent us the law to show us that. You see, the law in the Old Testament is a standard of righteousness in which nobody can attain to. No one. And you know, it's so simple is that he was able to distill it down to Ten Commandments. If we just followed the Ten Commandments, we could call ourselves righteous. Anybody in here been able to do that yet? You see, this is what I love is that we, we, we do as a people in a culture in our world right now, we hold the Ten Commandments up and we're like, we put them in front of the courthouse and that's great because it is a standard of righteousness, but all we're doing is putting up there the charges against ourselves. We celebrate the very charges that are going to be used on Judgment Day against humanity. When we stand before God, those who are not in Jesus Christ are going to be judged by those commandments And so the first commandment, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Have you ever put anything else before God? Guilty. And we could go through all ten of them, and all of us at some point is going to be like, okay, I'm guilty. Okay. It should cause a godly grief within you then, in which you realize I'm in trouble. If this is the standard that God is going to judge me by, I am in trouble on, on judgment day, and it should lead you to a point of like, okay, what must I do? And that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and the apostles went out and preached the gospel to the world for the first time after the resurrection of Jesus. What do we find? He preaches that Jesus died, he was resurrected, that the time has been fulfilled, that they need to to put their trust, and it says that it cut them to the heart. And they said, what must we do? That's what godly grief produces, is an open heart and an open mind that is willing to follow God wherever he leads. Where we stop justifying ourselves. This is the great thing about the law, is that the law stops every mouth and silences every argument that could be made for self-justification. It silences them. And so it says it produces 
a repentance that leads to sanctification. What is repentance? Repentance is when we stop pursuing the world and all the sin involved and start pursuing God by faith. And I use the word pursuing on purpose. Because we can get this legalistic idea in mind that repentance means that I will never sin again. Anybody accomplish that yet? Still working on that one, right? (laughs) Still getting there. Repentance is not a call to perfection. Repentance is when I'm willing to look at my life and say it's headed the wrong direction, so I'm going to turn, and as I was pursuing the world, as I was pursuing my own heart, as I was pursuing something other than God, thus violating the first commandment, and now I'm going to start pursuing God. I'm going to pursue, and I'm going to walk in faith, and I'm going to believe the things of God, and I'm going to invest my life in the things of God. And it doesn't all happen at once. But there is a moment of repentance where that turning happens. And then we learn how to follow God. Are we going to be perfect along the way? No, we're going to stumble many times. We're going to have this, the, these moments of failure where we, we think we're pursuing God, but we, didn't, you know, we just didn't quite figure it out, and we, and we struggle along the way. But each time we stumble, what do we do? We come back to God and say, okay, God, here I am again. I confess my sin. I'm still following you. I'm not giving up. I'm not going to pursue the world, even though the world got my attention for a second. I'm turning back to you, and I'm going to keep going. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not a pledge to God that you will never, ever, ever sin again, and if you do, you blew it. God knows that's not true. (laughs) He knows that's not going to happen. His grace is sufficient to cover you for every bit of your faith struggle along the journey. Amen? His grace is sufficient. And so, we have Proverbs 24, 16. It says, For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Notice what's the the common denominator there between the righteous and the wicked. They both fall. They both fall. What's the difference? The righteous get up again. That's it. The righteous keep going. The the wicked stumble and just stay there and keep pursuing sin and keep pursuing the world where the righteous says, okay, God, I'm not perfect. I'm going to get up and I'm going to keep following you and I'm going to keep trying. My life is spent in pursuing the things of God. And I may not have laid claim to it yet, but I'm not giving up. I may not be perfect yet, but I'm going to keep going. And I'm going to keep doing this. That's what godly grief produces in us. And so godly grief is not something that we experience once in life, but we'll experience several times through life. It's called conviction. That's what conviction of the Holy Spirit is. When God convicts us of something and we realize that we've fallen short of what God wants for us, He convicts us, He produces this godly grief in us in which we realize we're falling short of what God wants and we respond in repentance and faith and we are sanctified and we become more like Jesus just a little bit. That is the Christian process of life. And rather than allowing the enemy to get in your head and tell you how much you're failing, you know what you do? You let Jesus get in your ear and tell you how many times you're going to keep getting up and going forward. 
you don't quit. You just keep getting up. You just keep getting up. And you keep chasing after God. Each day is a new day. His blessings are new every single morning. And so we know repentance is real when we have the zeal to do the right thing even after we've failed. When we're going to keep trying. And that's exactly what Paul says. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7.11. He, he lists out how he sees their repentance playing out. He says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Like they're, they're even, he's like, you're even punishing yourselves. I'm not saying we've got to go out and do that. He's just saying, you guys, you guys are now so into trying to follow God that when you fail, you're taking matters into your own hands to fix it. And so far from seeing them as failures, Paul is pointing out, look at how far you've come. There was a time the Corinthians wouldn't have cared one bit about their failures. Now, what does it say? They've got this eagerness to clear their name. They want to do what's right. They are longing for what's right. And so I've, I've had many people come to me in my life in, in ministry. And they say, you know, I just struggle so much. I struggle so much and I just, I'm not where I should be. And, and I, I, I hate that I'm not a stronger Christian. And I mean, they just beat themselves up. And you know what? Every single time I look at them and I say, you really should be encouraged right now. And they just look at me with this blank stare of like, did you not just hear everything I just said? And I say, no, you really should be encouraged because the fact that you care this deeply is proof of God's presence in your life. Because if the Holy Spirit wasn't convicting you, you wouldn't care right now. You wouldn't be in here talking to me, bearing your soul and, and feeling this guilt and, and wanting to, to grow beyond these failures. You wouldn't be convicted for your sin. If you weren't walking with God, you wouldn't care. So some of you in here need to be encouraged. The fact that you care is proof that God hasn't given up on you. And His grace is sufficient to bring you through all of this. Now, what does he tell us? He says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But it says, worldly grief leads to death. Let's talk about worldly grief for a minute. One, it can bring only death. Worldly grief does not grieve the sin it grieves the results of the sin. And there is a huge difference there. Worldly grief says, I want to be unchained from the results of my sin, but I don't want to change my actions, my heart, my lifestyle, who I am. And this is something that, that we have to, we really got to square this in our mind because one of the things that we will do in a, in a fleshly way, it's one of the things the enemy wants us to do is get us to believe that somehow our sin is really not a part of who we are at all. And that I can somehow remove sin from my life and stay exactly the same. And I've had people tell me, well, I, you know, if I, if I really give this up, you know, I'm gonna, it's going to change who I am. And I'm like, bingo, you, you've learned the truth. You got it. And they said, I don't want to change. And I said, well, that's the problem. Because everything God's processes is going to do is going to change us, right? 
It, it is. It's going to lead to sanctification, which is that becoming the person he created you to be, which is that new creation in Jesus Christ. So we're going to change, and we cannot hold on to sin and become a new creation at the same time. And as we are grieved by sin, why we are grieved reveals where our heart is. Are we grieved simply because of the results and the consequences, or are we grieved because we violated God's holiness? Worldly grief wants sin to be consequence-free, and we grieve the fact that it isn't. That is worldly grief. Worldly grief cannot be resolved. Worldly grief just weighs down on a person and just keeps weighing down on a person and is an anchor that, that just drags them down into the depths and wants them to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And in fact, Romans one thirty two puts it this way. It says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If that doesn't describe our world right now, I don't know what does. Instead of repenting, instead of turning away from it and turning towards God, humanity simply tries to convince others that the sin really isn't sin. And if we can convince enough people to join us, that somehow it will change the reality of what sin is. And you know what? God isn't having it. God will not compromise his standards if all of humanity rose up at once and shouted at God that they didn't want to repent. He would say, I don't care. God is not going to compromise his holiness. In fact, he believes, it, I mean, his holiness is such a part of him, is uncompromising that he had to send his son to die on the cross as a sacrifice to take away the punishment for sins so that people could once again be with him because he would not sacrifice his holiness. And the wages of sin is death, and so the death that God was willing to give was the price of his own son. But the world wants to rage, and so this worldly grief says, I'm going to cling to my sin... And I'm going to ride it all the way down to the pit of hell if I have to before I let go of it. And it is a weight that, that it causes grief, it causes sorrow, it causes death. And if people aren't willing to let go of it, it will kill them. And so the circle is only broken when we see God's holiness and feel the weight of our sin, we're grieved, and we repent. It comes down to, are we willing to turn loose of the world? Because within this, there is always a bigger picture going on. When God starts this process in your life, at any point, okay, saved, unsaved, I mean, your salvation, been a Christian for 50 years, doesn't matter. When God starts this process of conviction and godly grief sets in, and, and we repent and we, you know, grow and we draw closer to God and, and, and sanctification happens. It's about more than just you. Understand that. It is about more than you. There's a bigger picture involved here that God is working on and he never just works on one side. Your circle of influence is involved in this. People around you are involved in this. The state of the world is involved in this. It's not just about you. 
And, and so listen, Paul reminds them of this in 2 Corinthians seven twelve. He says, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. So you had this whole thing happen in Corinth of people doing the wrong things and people who were wronged and it caused division and this big blow up and they're talking bad about Paul and he's having to defend himself and all of this is going on. And now Paul says, I wrote you the letter I did calling them to repentance that grieved them. But he says, but it wasn't just about them. Notice he starts to open the door for like, there's a lot more going on here. There's a lot more happening he says, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Paul's concern wasn't just for them to clean up a particular sin, but it was about a broader self-awareness that was actually positive. He wanted them to see who they really were, who they really were in Christ, in God. He wanted to see the depth of their faith. He wanted it revealed to them. Which to me is kind of funny because it's like Paul already knew. He saw things that they didn't yet. He saw things about their faith. He saw the reality of their growth. And he wanted them to see it. And he knew that this process of them being grieved and repenting was what was going to reveal it to them. And so sometimes we can get so kind of laser focused on, you know, cleaning up a particular sin or one thing in our lives or something that we kind of forget. Like, God's working all over the place. In fact, he's always working everywhere. And so Paul saw that they were more, now get this, Paul saw that they were more than the momentary failure they had experienced them, that, he, that they had experienced, and he wanted them to see that. And he says, in the sight of God. He wants them to see the truth of who they are in God's sight. Not just this, you know, kind of kerfluffle that broke out and people getting mad at each other. It, that it sure seems to define life, right? It, it defines life for a while. When we, when we get at odds with each other or, or, or with people, you know, it can sure like, it brings a damper on the day or the week or, you know, for a while, right? It's like kind of all we can see. And Paul says, I wanted you to see something bigger than that. And so I wrote this, but it wasn't just about the people involved and whatever happened. This is the bigger picture that I want you to understand. And so part of that bigger picture is understanding God is always working. And he never just works on one side. Okay, so if God wants you to go talk to somebody and share the gospel with them, don't you believe he's preparing that person's heart to hear the gospel? He's always doing, he's not just working on one side. And I want you to get this. If he wants you to go share the gospel with somebody, trust me, it's not just for the sanctification of that person. It's also for your growth. Anybody ever experienced that? Where God lays it on your heart, and you're like, oh, God, I don't want to. And you got to fight that fight. And then something finally clicks inside of like, why am I arguing with God about telling someone about Jesus? God, something's wrong here. And he goes, exactly. Now let's, you know, let's go do this. And, and we have to overcome things. We have to be grieved ourselves in order to obey. God is never just working on one side. Another thing in this, God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are not our ways. How many of us would choose, God, grieve me so that I'll grow? Like we're just not going to pray that. 
We may, in a self-righteous moment, to think we're awesome, pray something like that, and God's like, oh, you don't mean that. Let me show you how much you don't mean that. I had a, a, a friend that I knew that something in his mind, he's like, God, I've never really suffered for you. I want to suffer for you. And I was like, well, that was a bad prayer. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not sure why anybody would intentionally pray that, but okay, continue your story. He's like, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But he went on a mission trip somewhere, and he's like, you know, I just know people throughout the world are suffering, and I don't suffer, and I just, I feel like I need to suffer for you. And God's like, okay. So he said he got horribly sick and had to go lead worship. And he said it was bad. Like, he said it's the sickest he's ever been in his life, and yet God was like, now go do it. Go. And then afterwards, he's like, hey, you did this. You prayed for it, so I'll let you do it. So you, how was that suffering? Did you enjoy it? And it was a moment of clarity for him that he's like, okay, maybe we need not elevate certain things just for the experience. But God's ways are not our ways. And when we can really adopt that in our mind, we can understand, I'm not going to understand what God is doing like ever up front. Okay? There's a reason the Bible says hindsight is 20-20. Because he knows we're not going to see anything. Okay, that's what faith is. It's just believing that God knows what he's doing and I trust him enough to follow him and it's not going to make sense because the way God's going to do anything is not the way you would. It's not the way I would. It's not even anything we would imagine most of the time. And so we have to, it's one of those things, we just got to stop white-knuckling life and let go and like, okay, God, I trust you know what you're doing. Because I don't. But that's okay. The scripture says his ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. Which means the level God's working at is beyond our comprehension all the time. But he's always working. What else is part of his, uh, what, what we should know about God's process in the bigger picture? God rewards those who diligently seek him. That is a fact. That is scripture. God rewards those who diligently seek him. Now, he doesn't say when. He doesn't say how. He, we, we, just that God rewards. But has anybody in here ever been disappointed by God's reward? Anyone? You just, you know, you're like, ah, God, that's not enough. See, when God rewards his people, he rewards his people. And this is a truth in this whole bigger picture. When we are grieved, we got to know that if I obey God, there's something good coming from it. I have to believe that. In fact, that is the definition of faith. In Hebrews 11.6, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For, one, we must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. If you don't believe in your heart that God is going to reward your efforts to seek him, you can't please him. Because God wants to reward you. And then, within that, the bigger picture is to believe godly grief leads to life. And so what we grieve reveals what we serve, and we cannot serve two masters. The bigger picture is sometimes God has to reveal things to us that we'd rather keep hidden, that we'd rather remain unaware of in our lives, and when he reveals it, it hurts. It's not just to hurt you. God's not picking on you. He's sanctifying you. He's removing some of the dross so that the pure faith is revealed, and that is a good thing. And so grief will either cause our faith to enlarge as we move into repentance in life 
or it will cause it to contract as we retreat into ourselves. We either run to God or we hole up in ourselves. It's one or the other. And so for the Corinthians, we see God's working was effective. They were grieved, they repented, and Paul points it out. He lets them see, I want you to see how you've succeeded. And it's one of those times it won't feel like a success immediately in this world. Our feelings will lie to us and tell us we failed. When God's saying, no, you succeeded, you were grieved, and you repented, that's success. That is what faithfulness is. And so we have to learn to listen and lean into the work of God, even if it causes us grief and trust that a bigger work is going on. God convicts us of something personally, we're grieved. We repent. Our repentance leads to new ways of thinking, new actions, and we change. And we change because we cannot live in a vacuum. If God has us remove something from our lives, something has to replace it. And part of the problem sometimes with Christians is that we try to live in that vacuum. We become all about what we're not doing when we really should be about what we are doing in observing God's ways and following him in obedience. And so our focus becomes, well, I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I don't do that. And God says, that's great. That was just step one. Step two is what I want you to actually do. And if we don't replace it with something, what happens? We go back. Because we cannot live in a vacuum. We must fill the void with something. And if God tells us to remove it, there's a reason he wants it gone because it's going to make room to do something new, to become something new. But there is a real warning in this in Matthew 12, 43 through 45 that says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. What's that? Things cleaned up. Things looking better. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. We can't live in that vacuum. We are either actively obeying God or rebelling against him. We have to follow him. Now, this is why... I don't, don't be scared of this, but it's why it says the righteous fall seven times. Get up again. Don't leave the vacuum there. Don't leave the void. Just keep trying. Keep going. Keep following God because that is filling the void. It's when we give up that things start to deteriorate and they deteriorate rapidly. And so lastly, what we've got to do is rejoice in the truth hope for the future, and look for the good. And I'm not talking about being, you know, unrealistically optimistic. I'm just saying look for what is good because it is there. If we believe God is always working, then proof of God's hand is going to be there. No matter how dark the situation, there's going to be something that we can look at and say God is working. God is here. And even if we have to go back and say, you know what? Jesus died for my sins and I'm forgiven and I know I'm going to heaven. So even if this kills me, I win. At the end of the day, that's a win. That means we've chosen to look at our lives through the lens of faith rather 
than to look at it through worldly grief. And so we've got to rejoice in the truth. And I love this section of Scripture. It is so personal. Get a real sense for what Paul is saying to him, okay? Starting in verse 13, he says, Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Verse 14, For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Now think about all the ways the Corinthian church has failed the things Paul has had to write to tell them not to do. Hey, don't get drunk during the Lord's Supper. That's bad. Don't eat all the food when somebody else is still hungry. Don't do that. Don't visit the temple prostitutes. That's bad. I mean, the, the list is really big for the Corinthian church. And yet, what does he write? He's bragging about them. He's like, these people's faith is real, Titus. I know we've had to deal with it, and I know there's been struggles, but I'm telling you they're responding, and their faith is real, and you're going to be so impressed with them when you get there. And he he writes, and he's like, and you didn't put me to shame. You did it. You're doing it. Everything that, that is there, the hallmarks of faith, you were grieved and you repented. You're doing what you should do. And I love it because if anybody had a beef that could say, you guys have been horrible to me. It was Paul. And what did Paul choose? He's bragging about him. He's lifting them up saying, hey, you guys rock. You're awesome. You see, Paul chose to see the hand of God in everything that was happening. And it colored how he talked about them to other people because he genuinely believed it. This is the hope that, that God gives to us in this process. And it's why we can welcome godly grief into our lives because we know it's going somewhere amazing. It is God is working in ways to redeem, to to restore. God is not mad. He is not punishing. He is building. He is refining. And you're here today. You won. I promise Satan didn't want you here today, but you came. The next time you pray, Satan wants you to not pray. When you pray, you won. See the hand of God in the things around you and know God has not given up on anybody. And he is always working and you are going to benefit from it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today, God. Thank you for the work in our lives. God, thank you that you are always working, God. Even so much of it we don't see. We don't acknowledge. We don't understand. And yet, God, it's not dependent on us. It's not about us. It's about who you are. And so, God, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, of where and how you're working, God, in ways that will encourage our hearts. And, God, lead us to encourage one another in, in the same way that we would believe 
deeply that, that God, you are always working, not only in our lives, but in, in the lives of those around us. God, that we would experience your love not only for us, but for others. That God, we would have that same heart that Paul had as he, as he bragged, as he boasted about the Corinthians. God, that that would be our heart for each other in this family. That we would look for what is good, that we would hope for the future. That we would know that you are at work and we would be excited about that work. God, that we wouldn't give in to the pessimism and worldly grief around us, but God, that we would, we would rejoice in who you are, in your presence, in your ways. God, if there are any here who don't know you, God, I pray that they would just open their heart to the truth, that all they have to do is invite Jesus into their lives, put their faith in him, and they'll be saved. God, be with us, be with each person here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all. Father God, as we leave this place, God, I pray that you watch over each person. God, use us to share your love, your spirit, your grace with those around us, God. Use us to be a lighthouse in a dark world. God, I pray that you, you protect each person. God, be with our, our kids as they go to school this week. Be with our teachers. God, we just pray for, for our country, our leaders. God, we lift it all up to you and put it in your hands. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you and keep you.